0: Good to be back here at CBC. Let me pray for us as um, we explore what God is saying to us through Isaiah today. Lord, it's true that we need you, um, and we recognize so much <clears throat> in the rest of our life is designed so that we don't have to pay attention to that need. Um, whether it's through education or a job, um, whether it's uh, good financial savings or a safety net of friends, family, Um, and society Um, so I pray through our time here today um, intensify our awareness of our need for you um, so that we can turn to the one who alone is our security and our hope um, and our salvation you are the Lord Uh, and in that we take great hope that we take great comfort in Jesus name amen Um, when we join with everyone else and say happy Father's Day Um, I've been paying attention to all the news things on Father's Day, and there's always kind of the you know required things of um, several of the men's kind of blogs and news sites trumpeting how good fathers are. The um, blogs that always talk about how bad their fathers are and how they're trying to work through that. The one that really caught my eye this year, though, I think it was on CNN, but it could have been a different one. I didn't, I didn't print it out. Like I, I was thinking about it. They talked about how much more difficult being a father is now than it was 50 years ago. Now, some of it's because society has changed, right? And so some of it's because um, uh, more women are primary wage earners in the house than ever before. Uh, In married families, nearly 30% of all women are the primary wage earners, the larger wage earners. And as a man, let me just say, praise God for that. I mean, that's a good thing, but it means for a lot of men who sought their identity, and I'm the provider, I'm bringing home the bacon, all of a sudden that role has been diminished. And if you're actually married in a dual married couple, both of your, both the husband and the wife are working, which is very typical, especially in this area of the world, then you realize you're just contributing and your family isn't totally dependent on you, just partially dependent on you. So the article talked about how um, 50 years ago, it was sufficient to just bring home the bacon. You could be distant, but a provider, and you felt like you were doing a great job. And now, now that you aren't critical, in that role, or even necessary in some cases in that role, men are having to do this really complicated thing of now I have to be emotionally present, and I need to be a moral provider for my family, and I actually have to be fully engaged in what they're doing. Now, The women, of course, are all laughing at the struggle men. they're like, that's always been the case for moms, whether you work outside the house or not. Right? For moms, and you, all the moms know this, you've spent your, your entire life as a mom I have to keep the house moving and pay attention to my child and be emotionally present. And if I'm working outside, of I have to do all of those at the same time. Welcome to the real world, men. <laughs> um, but the challenge for us, right, is it's much more complicated to be a father or mother than we were taught originally. And going through the motions won't be enough. You actually have to be present now as a father emotionally present to your wife and to your children, to be fully engaged in the life of your family. Being a distant provider isn't sufficient. And in some ways, that's precisely what God is challenging the Israelites with in the passage that we heard in Isaiah 29. And I just want to say, um, in your bulletin, there's a screen sheet. Um, I wish somebody had sent this to me while I was preparing my sermon because it really um, said everything. I could just read it to you. and we're even, I even have the exact same Annie Dillard quote. That's paragraph three, two-thirds of the way through the sermon. So it was pretty ironic. I was reading really like, oh, they have the quote. Oh, look, the entire sermon. So I could really just walk away and go read this. But that would be a breach in form. So we're, we're going to continue anyways. Isaiah is this great, wonderful text. And I've never looked at this passage before. And it's part of the privilege of preaching through lectionaries, You end up with these odd texts. But part of what Isaiah is getting at, right, is God is angry and frustrated at the people of Israel at this stage. He's frustrated that they're seeking um, solace, security, and comfort in a political and military alliance with Egypt as they're facing the threat um, of the Assyrian Empire, and they aren't turning to him. And so he has these words of judgment and condemnation for the people of Israel that I'd like us to read again. And what I'd like you to pay attention to is, if the living God is speaking to them, and he claims he's been speaking all along, what's the problem that he thinks he's facing as he deals with the people of Israel so listen to what he's trying to get at as he um, confronts them let's begin again in Isaiah 29 verse 9 be stunned and amazed blind yourselves and be sightless be drunk but not from wine and stagger but not from beer The the Lord has brought over you a deep sleep he has sealed your eyes the prophets he's covered your heads the seers For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say, read this, please, they will answer, I can't, it's sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read, say, read this, please, they'll answer, I don't know how to read. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely on the human rules that they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish and the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord who do not work? Sorry, who do their work in darkness and think who sees us? Who will know you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed? Say to the one who formed it. You did not make me can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing. We worship a living God, and the danger that he wants us to confront at the beginning of this passage is, you will harden your hearts, right? And he, he does it metaphorically by saying, be stunned amazed, blind yourself, and be sightless. Kill your own ability to see and to hear my word, and you will be blind and deaf you'll be unable to receive what I give you. Part of what God seems to be saying to the people of Israel is your spiritual torpor, your spiritual exhaustion and apathy are self-inflicted. You've caused it upon yourself because in part when you choose not to see my word, when you choose not to listen, when you refuse to obey what I've already told you, when you fail to put in practice what you already believe, your heart will grow hard. You'll be unable to receive more. And then judgment's going to fall, right? We saw this in scripture. If you remember reading through the book of Exodus with the story of the Pharaoh, Moses comes to the Pharaoh and says, look, the Lord God Almighty has called the people of Israel out of Egypt, allow them to leave. And it says the Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused to respond. And then every time after that, what you hear is, the Lord hardened the Pharaoh's heart. Now, people are often disturbed. Is it really fair for the Lord to judge the people of Egypt and the Pharaoh if the Lord kept hardening their heart? Right? I mean, that seems a little, that's like one of those terrible catch-22s that you end up with. Like, the Lord made you not respond, so now he's angry at you for not responding. Right? It's a terrible, dysfunctional relationship. But prior to that, it's the Pharaoh hardened his heart. He refused to hear the word of the Lord through Moses. And he said, I reject that. I'm not going to listen. So the Lord says, fine. You're beginning to walk down a path. And I'm going to allow you to keep walking. The further you walk from me, the fainter my voice will be. And the fainter my voice is to you, the less you are likely to respond and the more you will ignore it. And therefore, you will keep walking until one point you will get what you want. I will be silent. Philip Yancey talks about this in his book, Um, What's So Amazing About Grace, right? How far does God's grace go? And he was sitting with a good friend of his um, who confessed to Philip in the midst of a conversation, I'm really planning to have an affair. I don't love my wife anymore. I'm unhappy in my marriage and I found somebody who makes me feel alive and young and happy again. And so the question I want to ask you, Philip, is if God can forgive anything, will he forgive me the affair? How do you answer a question like that? Right? You could go to, well, there's some theological truth here and theological truth here. Philip actually went, I think, straight to the pastoral heart of the issue. He said, I'm not sure you will care if you go through with this affair. And that's absolutely it, isn't it? And we all know it from those, right? For those of us who struggle with sin on a regular basis, the few of us who might be here, we all know when you pursue a course of sin long enough, you actually just stop caring whether God cares, and that's when you're actually in the greatest spiritual danger, right? For those of us who've ever been in a hard marital season, you know that at some point you cross line. You just decide the greatest danger is not offending or hurting your partner. It's when you stop caring that you've hurt or offended your partner. And the first work to build that relationship is not working on the behaviors. It's working on the heart so that you still care about why you do it. And God says, look, you've blinded yourself, so be blind. And then you're going to stumble around drunk, but not from wine. It's from your own indifference. You're going to stagger from your lack of concern. And the Lord is just going to confirm that and put you in a deep sleep. He's going to put a sack over your head. because Why would you even bother to see what I have to say? I'm going to stuff cloth in your eyes and ears because you have no intention of hearing. And then he right, goes on to say, look, it's like I have a scroll with my own words to you, and it's covered with a seal, and I bring it to somebody who can read, like, open the scroll, listen to what the Lord has said. And they go, I don't know, it's sealed. I can't do anything about it. Break the seals, open the scroll. Can't be bothered. Or you go to somebody who can't read, look, here's the scroll, this is the word of God for you. Read it. And the response is, I can't read, which seems Obvious. Until you ask, why don't you find someone who can read it for you? Ask somebody to announce this to you. I can't read. I have no interest in going further. The importance, therefore, of approaching worship, knowing that you're talking to the living God, knowing that the living God is speaking to you, is positioning your heart, I think, to receive and to obey. And obey, not just in doing more, but actually reshaping your affections and your beliefs so that when we're engaged together in worship, it's not just, hey, God has saved you and by grace, so you don't need to do anything more, but try a little harder tomorrow, right? It's not just that. But it could be during the course of this worship, as you're seeing about the amazing grace of God, that you just remind yourself, I don't need to do anything differently, but I have to believe differently. His grace is extravagant, overflowing, delivered to me. There's nothing more I need to do to please him. It could be as we sing about the holiness of God and growing Christ-likeness, rather than saying, okay, what do I need to do today? It's realigning your affections and your belief to say, I want that. It's walking through the doors of the church and actually beginning to reshape your attitude so that you come in with a deep sense of expectation. The Lord's going to speak to me today. That's actually why churches always have this vestibule and entryway. It's not just to protect us from the rain. But one of the beautiful which is really useful, and especially up here from the snow. But it's actually from the moment you walk in, the entire environment is trying to communicate to you. You are walking into a place where the Lord intends to speak to you, right? So as you walk in the main doors, which, right, the, the beautiful new vestibule, on your left, there's um this kind of display. Um with a cross and some other things, and it's designed to begin to remind you you are walking into the Lord's presence here in a special way. Prepare your hearts, right? It's one of the reasons that you all have gone to great lengths to actually make beauty as you walk in because there's something about the reality of beauty that makes you think there's something greater and bigger than the day-to-day concerns I'm facing right now. It's drawing up your eyes out of yourself and beginning to connect you with the transcendent. Right? It's one of the reasons that we love for people to come a little earlier and talk to one another so that you engage in community. And even if your own faith is beginning to falter, you think, that person, they're still doing well with the Lord. And it reminds me of why I want to continue. It's why we worship in a multi-generational setting here. Right, It's one of the things I love about this community is that you have everybody from 11 to um, distinguished. Distinguished. <laughs> Because I know what I need in my mid-40s is to look at distinguished and go, every time I see them when they open the word of God, they still expect God to speak. So 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, I don't think anybody here is 40 years older than me, but maybe I want to go like that, right? All of those things here at church are designed to awaken in us a posture of beginning to receive. Um, And the entire way we structure our service is designed that as well, right? We stand not just because the worship leaders are standing, though, that's good. They don't feel so lonely up here. But actually, right, when we sing, it's designed to orient not just our mouths, but our minds, our hearts, and our bodies are all engaged in the same activity. I'm going to declare true things about God and true things about where I am and what I hope God will do. And so it's not just I can say it while I'm sitting, but I'm not going to sing it, which requires my emotions and heart to get engaged. My lungs and my body are now standing before the Lord and proclaiming that this is true. It's why in more expressive congregations, right, they're holding up their hands, or they're holding their hands out because they desire to receive, and they're just trying to align everything just to try to get their hearts in that right place. You intend to say something to me, and I intend to respond, Lord. We worship a living God, and so The first thing you have to worry about is, you can't harden, please don't harden your hearts. He intends to make himself known. We worship a living God. The problem, of course, is you can go through all these things here at worship. You can come, you can sing, you can pray, you can, um, if you were in a liturgical church, recite the things that are being told that you're supposed to recite, and you can still go through the motions. You can still perform in the wrong way. Now, I know this is super true because I during worship services, I'm supremely distracted. Um, I mean, part of it, of course, is when you're speaking in your head, even while you're singing and people are praying. You're running through your sermon notes, desperately hoping you will be coherent in a couple of minutes. And um, if you look at my notes, I'm usually scribbling down things as new things come to me, or like, oh, that would be clearer. Um, but even when I'm not preaching, right? Um, I'm an English major, so I'm super distracted by song lyrics. Like, just one wrong image sends me on um, paths and trails that are super unhelpful. Uh, amusing, I think, but super unhelpful. There was there's this one song lyric that thankfully isn't popular anymore, but the last line was something like, and we will dance upon injustice, right, when the Lord comes. And all I can think of every time I've sung that song is, like, quick, you rumba on the racism, you polka on the poverty, you foxtrot on famine, let's go, everybody, dance on injustice. And well, you can see why worship is really an exercise of the will for me. <laughs> but what, what God seems to be saying to the people of Isaiah is you can go through all the motions and still obey in the wrong way, right? The Lord says, look, the people come to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And what God is getting at, it's interesting. It's not just rote or liturgy, because I think those are actually profoundly formative influences for us but their worship of me is merely based on the human rules that they have been taught. God condemns them for singing the words they've chosen, praying the prayers that they always pray, and just going through the motions. And what he's saying, look, you could totally obey the structures without being present. This is why Christians talk in dreary, monotonous ways, which is kind of bad for a uh, preacher preachers say no, but why we talk drearily and monotonously and continuously about why this is a relationship and not just a religion. right? It's Father's Day, so I'll apologize for all of the relationship kind of analogies, but it's there. Um, we've all been in relationships with people who did the right things, but their heart isn't in it at that moment, and you know how hollow it feels when that happens. right? It's the romantic gesture that you know they're doing just because they have to make the romantic gesture at that moment. And it's almost worse that they did it. Because they're just spoiling what should have been a beautiful moment for you, right? It's the spouse, guilty, who while you're talking, you can tell mentally is not there because they're looking at their um, smartphone or they're clearly rehearsing things at work and you just think we're having a conversation, but only sort of, right? For me as a father, the biggest challenge is I'm playing with my kids but whenever they're distracted, I'm pulling out my iPhone so I can hack away a couple more emails so I can be more free for them later. But and my kids can totally tell I'm not there. Right? I was just playing with my older daughter yesterday and um, we were playing in the park and she wanted to be the doctor and the patient and every time she'd wander away to go check if the waiting room was available or something, I quickly you know, was answering an email and after about five minutes, she just lost interest in the game but she knew I was not present. If that's true for us, how much more so God, who actually knows if we're present, who knows if we're just singing the words on the glowing screen and engaging in high scale karaoke, or um, whether our hearts, minds, and souls are aligned and we're just thinking, not only are I singing at the glowing screen, but those words are truer than any other words I know at that moment. How do we become fully present in what we're doing? It strikes me um, how frequently in worship that's difficult to do. right? I, I, professionally, it's hard for me to do. As an English major, it's hard for me to do. When I have kids in the worship service, right? 90% of my brain is please, I'm just tracking them. Are they running around? Are they noisy? Are they hungry? Do I need to feed them things? My ability to be focused on what I'm doing here at worship um, is really shattered. And I suspect a lot of us walk in that way. If it's not the kids or the job, um, it's all the burdens you walk in with as you start a Sunday worship. And let's just acknowledge that to be true. It struck me while we were singing today, because I was trying to pay attention, lest I convict myself in this talk while I give it, um, on two of the different songs we sang, they talked about what it would mean that we would be worshiping for 10,000 years and more. Right? Uh, both with the Amazing Grace Redo and then um, the 10,000 years. Um, and it struck me that what we're doing here at worship is really practice. We're engaging in the discipline now of what it would mean to be fully present to God's presence. I, I don't think we're gonna be trapped in a church service for 10,000 years or more. Um, <laughs> Praise God, right? I mean, that I, no matter how good the worship song at some point, you just think, we've done this a million times, literally. It's, um, but I think part of worship is how do we become so aware of the Lord's presence that when we talk, when we breathe, when we sing, um, it's as if we're speaking to him. And I think the fact that we're practicing now is designed to give us some grace, right? When you practice something new, learning to play the piano, um, doing something athletic. I've been told, um, lear, my daughter's learning to write. I, I was, maybe the best example, I was teaching Madeline how to play checkers. Um, I bought her a little checkerboard as a gift after this last thing. trial. She gets so frustrated when she, it's clear she's gonna lose, and she's going to lose a lot, but she's playing against me. Um, and I'm older than her right now, and she can't think two steps ahead, right? She just thinks of the next step, so I have to go, what will Papa do if you do that? Take my piece. Yes. Right. But I bought her the game in part to try to teach her to think more than one step ahead uh, because I think it's a good life skill. She has to gut through the losses in order to learn to play. I think for us, if you're distracted at worship, it's okay. Accept the grace of God. This is practice. Of course you're distracted. But rather than berate yourself for being distracted, which is what those of us who are little driven and performance-oriented tend to do. Instead, when you're reminded, oh, I should be paying attention to Jesus right now, the proverb's response is not to beat yourself up or feel guilty. It's to say, Lord, thank you for drawing my attention back to you. Right? It's what we've all learned to do at prayer or Bible study. When you're distracted, don't beat yourself up over the distractions. You're busy people. You're distracted. Instead, respond with, thank you, Lord, for your gentle reminder. You are to be the focus of my attention here how delightful that you are good this way. Because right, if you allow yourself to get distracted by how badly you are doing at it, you give Satan a foothold. And you start thinking about the distractions rather than Jesus. And you just continue on that path far better in this practice lifetime that we have. Oh, I totally wasn't paying attention. Thank you for the reminder. I'm here with you now. We worship a living God. And so don't harden your heart. Come expectant. We worship a living God. So don't just go through the motions. Be invested and present. And we worship a living God. And if you do all those things, the problem is you may still think you're in control. Look at what um, God says the last uh, two verses in 15 and 16. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us, who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. So what does form say to those who formed it? You didn't make me. Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing. Sometimes we'll listen really hard. Sometimes we'll obey and do all the right things and try to be attentive to the Lord's presence. And we will do it for the wrong reasons. God challenges them when he says, look, you can't hide from me and you can't hide the truth from me, and there's no darkness that I can't see through, so your heart is exposed to me. Now, I suspect here what's going on is God saying, look, you can't plot with the Egyptians and think I don't know about it, but when you think about the context of worship <clears throat> um, and what God seems to say later, why do you think that you're shaping the cl- you clay, me potter? Don't confuse that relationship. Part of what God seems to be saying is this, um, I'm God and you're not, and let's not lose sight of that. I'm shaping you. You are not shaping me. Right? This is the reverse charge. Elsewhere in Isaiah, God mocks the people who worship idols. He's like, really? You cut the wood, the tree down. You shape the wood into an idol, and now you worship it. Who's really in charge of this relationship? You are. Why are you pretending to worship the wood? And I think he's saying, look, I'm the potter. You're the clay, and that's the way this relationship is working. I think it's easy for us to believe deep in our heart of hearts that if we listen appropriately and we obey faithfully, then God is really going to do what we want. And worship becomes a contractual relationship with him where we say, if I do this, then you, God, have to do this. Or if you do provide for me, God, or demonstrate your goodness to me, God, then I will do this. And essentially what we're saying is, you're the clay, and I'm the potter, if you do what I want, Clay, this is going to be a fantastic relationship. I'm thinking a lot about this, in part because um, Madeline, my oldest, um, will be five in September, um, went in for relatively minor surgery on Friday. Um, uh, Probably because of bad parenting, um, she had terrible cavities in her back teeth, um, and the cavity was really close to a nerve, so the dentist said finally, we need to do a root canal on both of the back teeth. Um, and because she's young and probably wouldn't sit through two rounds, he so said the best thing to do is do general anesthesia. We're going to put her out, so we t- need to take her to the hospital, and we'll just cap her teeth. Her back teeth are like brilliantly shiny silver. Um, we were joking, like we should like put diamonds and make it into a totally bling thing, in <laughs> her mouth. But you can imagine, right, as a parent, your 45 four-and-a-half-year-old child going in for under general anesthesia. My wife's a doctor, so she's thinking of every terrible incident that she knows of, of complications from general anesthesia, and I'm enough in that world to know them all as well. And while my daughter's in surgery, I have to be at home with my youngest one to make sure that somebody's with her. And all I want to do, right, is plead with God, and I want to bargain with him. If you, God, preserve my child's life and she emerges unscathed, then I will... And if you, like, please, God, okay, be good to her, and then we will do these things as a family. We will give, we will pray, we will survive, whatever. And every time I went there, I just thought, who's the potter and who's the clay? Because I desperately want to manipulate God to do what I want him to do, right? It's what we do with uh, parents or we do with spouses. Like, I knew I was coming here. I knew it puts a little more pressure on my wife. So I'm trying to be really nice to her this morning to bribe her into being a good mood while I'm gone. Well, she goes to church and then has to do all the grocery shopping, right? Like, we do this all the time, and God goes, I will have none of it. You are not the potter, I'm not the clay. I will not be shaped by your desires, your whims, your bargains. I'm the Lord, you are not. The great thing is this is good news. It's not that God is mean or hearted. In fact, because he is so good and so loving and so predisposed to bless us, it is far better that we don't have to bargain with him. There's no if-then with God. It's because God has already, therefore we are. right. Because God has already demonstrated his love on the cross, we don't need to worry about being forgiven. Because he's already said, I accept you unconditionally. There's nothing more we need to do. We don't have to create some grand contractual bargain with God where we go, if I sacrifice enough, you'll do this one nice thing for me, right? Instead, we get to throw ourselves unreservedly and unashamedly into his arms and say, I have nothing to give you, and yet you love me and desire to bless me and will give me the security I need. Anne Lamott um, always talks about how there's really only three phrases in prayer that matter. Help. Thank you. Wow. No bargaining, just help. No groveling, just thank you. An occasional wow. Cast yourself into his hands with no expectation results. Don't think that what you're do will manipulate him into being any more kindly disposed toward you. Which the good news is this his love for us isn't conditioned on our ability to be obedient. And for those of us who struggle with sin, this is really good news. Because his character is far more stable and far more consistent than I will ever be. It's a great thing not to have to be the potter and in control when the potter is already so skilled, so loving. And so delightful. And this is what the thief on the cross experienced, isn't it? As he's hanging there next to Jesus. He doesn't say, Lord, Lord, look, if you let me down from here, I will become a disciple. Or if you let me up here, I'll go to the Gentiles before you manage to convert Paul. Or I will talk to the Sanhedrin myself and convince them, right? All he says is, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, I have nothing left to give you. There's nothing left to offer. And what Jesus does is amazing. He doesn't go kind of late, don't you think? Uh Or a little snarky, like, oh, it's come to that, has it? (laughs) Or I guess Jesus's words to him are today, you will be with me in paradise. Nothing more you can do nothing you have to do. There's no bargain we have to reach. Just stretch out your heart. And I will say yes. This is where I was going to quote the Andy Dillard quote that's here in the green sheet, but I'll just let you read it on yourselves. You are in the presence of the living God. The world could blow up in a second if he were to actually reveal his majesty here. So pay attention. Focus your attitude. Be receptive to change. And then don't think for a minute that what we're doing here actually is going to change God's mind. In fact, it's largely designed so that our minds and heart would be changed by God's presence. Now, lest this all seem really um, firm, and I'll end with this. Consider the invitation that God is making, which drives these weird set of demands, right? Listen to the Lord and be responsive to Him, or else you will go blind. The invitation, at least but be fully expectant that I'm going to speak to you. Have no doubt that I have I intend to say something. Every time you open your Bible, my voice is going to be there. Every time we gather as a community, my spirit will be noticed and will be moving. So don't harden your hearts because really I'm speaking, that's the invitation that drives the don't do this. It's the positive I fully intend to make say something to you. Why should we be attentive? Why do we need to avoid going through the motions? Because God says, actually, when you do those things, I'm going to be present. Don't miss me. I'm here. Every Sunday when you gather, when two or more of you gathered in your house churches, in your scattered communities, I am there. Right? In your missional communities, I am there. Pay attention, not because I'm insulted, but because I promise to be there. Don't miss me. And don't think you can manipulate me because... Really? I'm already on your side. I'm the Lord. I engage with you by grace. Relax. They sound like negative commands until you consider the amazing invitation that he's making to us. I will speak. I'll make my presence known. And I'll demonstrate my grace to you. There's always more expected in a relationship than we're originally led to believe. Fathers are experiencing this massive transformation of what it means to be a father, from just economic provider and um, arbiter of discipline into a fully functioning member of a community that we call family, leading not just with economic might, but actually morally and emotionally engaging in this family partnering well with a spouse, and God seems to be saying the same thing. It's much more complicated than many people would like religion to believe. You can't just listen and not be willing to be changed. You can't just go through the motions and not pay attention. You can't just do the right things and expect it to go all just to go well. But I promise to speak. I promise to show up. And I promise to do good in your presence. And in the end, it's a far richer experience that he invites us to. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, um, despite my best attempts, um, I convict myself when I speak because I too often um, just go through the motions. I think about your text as merely something to study and be informed by rather than transformed by. Um, I do want to bargain with you because it gives me some semblance of control or power. And yet, um, what freedom and joy you offer me and my friends here at Community Bible Church. Help us to anticipate that you are speaking, that you are present, and that we're free not to be in control because one who's actually all-powerful, all-wise, and all-knowing is in control. And that his love has already been proven to us, and our security is already clear. To you be the honor and glory forever. Amen.